Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, each week on this show, I'm joined by a different leadership figure from the world of business, education, politics, sport, or even from local communities in the aim of truly discovering who those people are that get up every morning and make this country work. We get their take on the current economic and political landscape of the UK and discuss everything, including the serious, the funny, and how to look after your money. And of course, the success and the innovation that makes it all worthwhile in the end. Now, my guest on today's programme is Mike Legasic, author, director and behavioural investment coach at Manning and Company, a long established financial advice practice based in Devon. Mike is immensely passionate about informing people about the unvarnished truth surrounding investing and boasts decades of experience in the finance industry, being featured as one of the Mail on Sunday's top advisors in the UK for the last three years. Um, Alongside that success, the year 2021 saw Mike surpass a personal milestone, releasing his new book titled Your Money and Your Life which is now in circulation following four years of development. This book aims to teach readers vital life skills and money management know-how, which are often overlooked during one's school education. Uh, Mike, very warm welcome to yourself today, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Hi, Scott. Thank you very much for the opportunity to discuss it. I'm looking forward to this. Thank you. Yes, likewise, Mike. Um, I think a great place, of course, to start would be by talking about your book. And I understand that it contains a lot of the things that you wish you had known yourself when leaving school, along with a range of other effective money-saving tips and ideas as well. Um, There's a lot we can go into there. But firstly, in your own words, what was it that motivated you to put a book like this together? Um, my father used to write, um, I, my parents are no longer with me, sadly, but my father used to write, um, and had a few things printed and actually had a play put on in the local theater after winning a competition. So I could shoot, you could say, I guess I'm a bit of a chip off the old block, but, um, the main motivation really was to try and give something back. And because I work in financial services, um, it's almost like a Dickensian world we live in. It's shrouded in secrecy and it's almost uh, thought of as a dark art and my real driving ambition was to dispel all the myths, explain things in layman terms so clients can make fully informed decisions to be better educated because education around financial services is something I'm very passionate about. My, my honest opinion is that if there was more basic education with financial services, say from school, later, later in school, through to working life, you would get far better client outcomes and far less complaints that the FCA have to deal with almost on a daily basis, sadly. So it's incredibly important, isn't it, that financial education is brought in, particularly in formative years and making younger people much more aware about personal finance then? Absolutely. Um, I've been fortunate enough to have been asked to give talks to local universities and colleges in in the Plymouth area, which which I was born in. And I get the opportunity to speak to, um, you know, people that are in university and even the tutors there and to give them an outline foundation of the sort of things they ought to be thinking about sooner rather than later. There really is nowhere near enough basic education around finance, in my opinion, as there should be. 
Um, and what there is out there, again, my opinion, I think it's a little bit outdated and there's far too much jargon, industry jargon and nonsense. It really doesn't help any clients at all. It's almost speaking to people in, in the terminology that solicitors are often banded about using with old you know, agreements that are almost written in a Shakespearean fashion. It needs to be completely dragged up to the 21st century where it's a lot more easy to understand and more importantly, explaining key concepts that stand you in good stead for the rest of your life. And whose role do you think it is to address the issue and sort of make it more of a focus in state-led programmes? Do you think it's the government's responsibility, the education sector, or maybe even industry can play more of a role? Or do you think it's going to involve everybody pitching in? I think it does involve everyone. I think everyone needs to be on the same side. Um, I think it would be unfair to drop the responsibility on any one body or any one sector. I think, obviously, the people that make the decisions they have to be prepared to listen to the people that are sort of at the coalface. So I think it's a collective um, process that's going to be required to get things moving in the right direction. So yeah, I wouldn't put it on anyone's head. I think that would be unfair personally. Mm. I think it's a collective, a collaborative approach, which, I w- which would yield the best results over time. And I think what's also become very clear through research as well is that views on money are often instilled at quite a young age, aren't they? And that can have a real lasting effect on financial decisions that people make later on in their lives. So from a personal point of view, Mike, just out of interest in your position, what were your sort of earliest memories concerning finance, just out of interest? Yeah, I I discuss it in the book because, you know, most of our behaviours are formed from an early age, not just around money, but life in general. And, I mean, I had two wonderful parents. I'm the youngest of five brothers. And my parents showered us with all the things that money can't buy, love, support, you know, backing you and everything and, you know, giving you all the things that you want in your formative years. But we wouldn't had very little money. I was brought up in like a council estate. So um, it was a case of, you know, save the pennies. But, you know, I, I never came from an environment where money came easy to me. Mm. I, I'm not, I wasn't fortunate to think, oh, well, holidays were a given. Oh, I'm used to this. I'm used to that great if you're in that position, but I guess the majority of us aren't. So my early um, uh, ideas around money and my thought process around money was, you know, we didn't live in a, you know, um, money comes easy environment. You had to save and work hard to build up. But the book addresses the best ways to address that. I mean, I always jokingly say that if clients come in to see me for the first time with money to invest, I say that they come in with a suitcase full of M&Ms. And I'm not talking about the chocolate variety. What I'm talking about is myths, misconceptions, and misunderstandings around money. And you have to take the time to clear that garbage away, all that old baggage they've been carrying around for years. Because if they're basing medium and long-term decisions on what they think is correct, they're going to be blindly tap dancing into a financial minefield when retirement comes around. So you have to nip that in the bud and, and start at the very basis by trying to find out, you know, are these clients understanding what they're about to do or are they, are they dragging around a lot of old, outdated information because they think it, it, it's correct, but it absolutely, absolutely is not. And a lot of this, of course, underpins the way that you advise at Manning & Company, doesn't it? It's um, not so much about telling people what to do with their own money. It's about educating them to ensure that they're well-versed and they're able to make decisions of their own. And that's something called lifestyle financial planning, which takes the whole financial planning practice to a whole new level. Um, what exactly does that entail and why do you think that approach is so different? 
Well, for a start, I mean, it does come across as a bit wishy-washy. Let's call a spade a spade, a bit tree-huggy. I can understand people think, well, you know, you're a financial advisor. What's this financial and life planning nonsense? But if you think about it in anything in life, take finance aside from it. If you want to achieve a certain outcome in any aspect of life, surely the best way to tackle it is to first determine where you want to be and when. Then you then have to backtrace the steps that need to be taken to get from A to B. So clients don't come in to see us as financial advisors unless they've got a bit of grit in their shoes. Something has prompted them to take action. Another joke I make is you don't get a couple wake up one, sun, one Saturday morning and say, oh, what should we do today? And one of them says, oh, should we go and buy a pension today? It, it doesn't happen. So it's normally something that happens in their lives. It's either a, tra- a, tra- a life transition, someone's been ill, greatly, they've lost someone, or someone's just re- retired. It normally is something that brings something home to them to think, you know what, I really need to start thinking about what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Mm. Because, you know, life's not a rehearsal. Time moves on, you know, and before you know it, you're, you know, you're 40, you're 50, you're 60. So lifestyle financial planning is trying to say, look, in an ideal world, with money being no object and time being no object, what would your life ideally look like? Within reason, what would it be like? And then you begin to uncover sometimes deep-rooted passions that people have forgotten about, you know, things that we harbor as a kid. You know, we, we feel and feel a lot easier as a child, the world's your oyster when you're a child, and then life gets serious when you get older, and suddenly priorities change. So what we try to do is we try to say, but what is truly important to you, and when do you want to try to achieve it? And then we look at all the issues that could get in the way and the assets they have, and try to formulate a financial roadmap which is measurable and makes sense to the client so they can see tangible progress towards what they're trying to achieve. In essence, that's what it is. It's trying to guide a client from A to B, looking at all the obstacles in the way, navigating around it, and having a workable plan that they can see progress. Mm. And going back to the book for a moment, without sort of spoiling the contents, are there any examples of sort of simple finance tips that we could maybe share with the listeners now? Yeah, there are, certainly. Um, The big one is start early. You know, I mean, starting early is, is, is key. I mean, a common question, see, how you frame things to clients, you get you get different answers. I've recently launched a scorecard on my website. And basically, it's a, it's a test your financial personality. Understand who I am as a financial, what is my financial personality? It's a scorecard. One of those things take about 10 minutes, are easy to fill in. Now, I don't, I don't ask those, I don't ask people to take that quiz to be inquisitive or nosy. I've largely got it for existing clients of mine because I know the way they answer those questions immediately reveals to me whether they are still carrying their own misconceptions. Mm. I mean, a classic case in point is one question. If, if I said to a client, do you think you could regularly save 20% of your income? Most people in the street will probably say, no, I don't think I could. If you have a general discussion and 10 minutes later, I come back and ask another question and I say to them, do you think you could leave, live reasonably comfortably on 80% of your income? Most people say yes. Well, to live comfortably on 80% sort of suggests that you probably could save maybe 10 10 or 20%. It's the same question framed in a different way. And people always laugh. It's not to catch them out. It's the framing of a question. And a lot of psychology comes into it because Mm. in my experience, um, you know, um, logic is the most important thing. But irrationality more often than more often than not, Trump's logic. And that's the problem we have with people, especially when they're trying to navigate the through financial plans. 
So it's the type of questions that you ask to elicit responses and then to gauge the understanding of, and why, why a client answered that question and the way they answered it. Does that answer, mm. is that does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense, absolutely. And um, that that psychology is something that I do want to discuss in a little bit more detail in a different sense a little bit later on as well. Um, but I do want to touch on something that we um, just spoke about very briefly a little bit earlier, and that's about essentially life almost changing as we get older, priorities changing, and almost the life we have getting in the way of things like dreams and aspirations. Now, um, dreams and aspirations are something that perhaps inspire us throughout life, aren't they? But when you're accomplished in a leadership role, there can almost be that temptation, can't there, to say, I've done what I've set out to do, I've reached the top and I can't go any further. But for you personally, what motivates one to actually keep going at that stage from your personal experience? What drives you as a director, as a leader? Constant need for learning. I look back at what I've learned over, I mean, I'm 55, I've, le- I've, I've looked back over my life and looked at the areas that I fell down or areas where I wasn't strong in. And, you know, no, no one's good at everything. If there are, I've yet to meet that person. And I've tried to find out the, the areas. I, I tried to get people in to help me on areas I struggled with. Um, one of the reasons I wrote the book was I said to shortcut pe- people's way to success and to not make the silly mistakes that I've made over a many years where I banged my head against the wall or thought, why did I say that when I should have said this or I could have done this a far better way and be more effective. Everyone wants to work smarter more than harder. It's an old analogy, I know. A bit wishy-washy, but that's the fact of the matter. So it's it's trying to, a constant need for learning. I look back and think, what have I learned over the last 30, 40 years? Well, how much can I continue to learn? You know, I think Michael, Michelangelo at age 87 said, Ancora, Empower Ancora, which means, and yet I'm still learning. I mean, if Michelangelo can say that at 87, then, you know, I'm sure it stands well for every one of us. So a constant way of tweaking and improving things. I've spent a lot more time in the last 10 years learning about the psychological and behavior around clients, why people make certain decisions, than I have trying to get the very next exam under my belt. Because my honest opinion is that me getting more and more examinations won't really assist clients more than me understanding their behavior and getting them to learn their own behavior traits and why they do the things they do. Because when it comes to investing money, it won't be the market that does the people in, it'll be people's behavior. I I always tell clients, you and I cannot control the economy. There's billions of bits of information changing hands 24 hours a day globally. That is impossible to keep on top of. And a lot of it is subjective. You and I can't control the economy. We can't control the stock market. What we can control is our reaction to that news, how we behave around those, those news headlines that often scare or you know, cause people anxiety. That we can control, but we can't control the things that are out of our hands. So spend time on controlling and managing what you can be in charge of and try to let go of what you have no control over. It's a very, very fascinating way of exploring that. And just going into a little bit more detail on that, Mike, um, as not just a director within a business, but also a behavioral investment coach, um, how would you sort of describe your own personal leadership style with colleagues, but also with clients? Uh, well, it's a different thing, obviously, with, with, with um, clients and staff, different things because there's different roles because you're trying to get two sets of people to do, to do two different things. So from a leadership point of view, from a business point of view, it's trying to lead by example, never ask anyone to do something you wouldn't be prepared or you haven't done yourself, and, and guide and support, because we've all got to start somewhere. And it can be daunting 
you know, we all look back to our first day at work, stomach, butterflies, you know, are people going to like me? Am I going to be able to do the job? All those natural concerns that you seem to lose as you get more confident. From a client's perspective, it's always trying to remember that to try and put myself on the other side of that table. I'm the person that's never had this conversation before. How can I explain things in a way that a client makes sense and it feel, feels comfortable without them feeling silly or stupid? They're going to give me an answer to a question that might be embarrassing. So I've, I've spent an awful lot of time trying to develop conversations and questions that are open and engaging where no one can really give a wrong answer or feel foolish. Because I had a conversation with my wife about six months ago and I said, it, it never ceases to amaze me and I never lose sight of the fact that people are coming in to see me and are prepared to listen to me to manage their retirement, which you could be talking hundreds of thousands of pounds. It's a massive responsibility that I never take lightly, mm. and I need a self-reality check from time to time. The thing, you know, you're in a fortunate position. It's a very responsible position, and you live and die by your reputation. It takes years and years to build a reputation. You can ruin it in seconds. So people endorsing you or recommending you to friends is, every, is all the endorsement I need that I'm sort of must be doing the right thing in the right way. So it's making sure that always developing time and spending time on how can I better listen to a client? How can I make sure that I'm feeding back what they just said to me? And am I, am I really understanding what floats that client's boat? Makes perfect sense for sure, Mike. And you said as well that one of the main things that's influenced you throughout your career is that wealth of experience that you've accumulated over the years, that treating every single day as a school day, learning from your experiences. But are there any individuals, be it clients or colleagues, that you perhaps work with, worked with before that maybe have had an influence on you as well, perhaps? Yeah, excuse me, it goes back to always the constant learning. I, I, I do speak to people outside of my industry, my profession. I speak to them to have a different viewpoint, but are there's, there's common traits, but they're not to do with finance. And you do learn from clients. I mean, I continually learn from clients. You, know, you, you don't always just talk about the, the numbers. That can be quite boring for most people. You know, people want to talk about aspirations and goals that they don't, you know, no one's interested in a pension. I, I've, never, I've never met one person in my entire career who is remotely interested in a personal pension. But I have met hundreds of people who are very interested in future spending money. Mm. Even the terminology we use in our profession isn't engaging. It doesn't motivate. It's outdated, antiquated. It doesn't resonate with a lot of people. It comes out of the jargon. But I learn a lot from clients. There's, there's always going to be a client that's going to ask me a question or phrase something in a way that I've not quite heard it before, and it, it makes me stop and think. But I learn from it because I think, well, that's an interesting question. Of why, haven't, why haven't I thought about that? Or why haven't I thought about asking that question? So I think the person who thinks they've got all the answers doesn't know anything, in my opinion. You, you're not, if you don't have an open mind in business in general, the minute you think you know it all, you realize you know nothing. I think you're very, very right, Mike, for sure. And uh, before we do go any further with the discussion, I think we must address the elephant in the room here as well. And that is the fact that we are having this conversation in early May 2021. And of course, we've been in the grip of the global COVID-19 pandemic for quite some time, just over a year, in fact. Um, so just thinking about that for a moment, to what extent has COVID affected you and affected your operations, would you say? 
I'm one of the lucky ones. I think um, the type of profession that I am in with managing the company, the director and the other advisors that we have, we are we are fortunate. I mean, there's a lot of people out there that, you know, slip through the net from a government support point of view. I guess that was always going to happen. It's not mm. right. You know, you can argue about it all day, but it was inevitable, I guess. Um, and there are people that are either been furloughed or working at home on a lap with kids, you know, or, or working on the kitchen table. So, But basically, I have been working from home since a week before the very first lockdown. So for me, I'm lucky in the profession I'm in, and my business didn't stop. You could argue it, it took on a bigger, more important role, because mm. suddenly clients had a massive bump in the road, and they had to then sort of redesign either retirement or pre-retirement and look at things in a way that, you know, because they said the elephant in the room, no one saw this coming. You can legislate for um, economy, you know, different economical, economic cycles. You can legislate for tsunamis and 9-11s. You can't legislate for a global health pandemic. Um, so I've been lucky I can work from home efficiently. Our office has always remained open because we get mail every day and so mm. on. And we've been behind closed doors with so a full complement of admin staff to deal with day-to-day inquiries. But what, what it has enabled me to do, it made me realize that I was going in the office every day out of habit, not out of necessity. I've been more effective at home. So I've been sending out two newsletters a month to all my clients, keeping them informed in a more generic way, not, not finance-related because that would be boring and they would turn off. But I've had good uptake in my sort of MailChimp figures on people that have opened new emails many times. So I've, I've tried to allay their fears. I've tried to nip it in the bud and say, look, this is a global pandemic. This has happened. No one could see this coming. How do we now deal with it? I said there would be bumps in the road along the way. This is a major bump in the road. And now we need to. So what I've done, I've tried to constantly almost send all my clients a shot of sanity serum Mm. once or twice a month to keep their head on straight. And I'm really grateful to say that my phone wasn't ringing up with people in full-scale panic because the way I've tried to deliver my service is being transparently, brutally honest with clients. So, for example, anyone that comes to me to invest money, I will always tell them that their investments categorically are going to fall in value from time to time. And how do we manage it? I'm not one of those that's going to sugarcoat things and say things can go down as well as up. It might go down. Anyone who's investing for a long period of time and all of my clients are long-term investors. I, re- I refer to them as rollies, mm-hmm. rest of life investors. So they're going to invest basically to the day they die one way or another. It's wholly unrealistic to think that your investment is only going to ever go up day after day, year after year. So I tell them, and not might, your investments are going to fall in value from time to time. So there's no surprise. And when you do get someone who has a bit of a twitch or a nervous moment, I can go back about what we discussed explaining, yeah, these are one of those times. Remember what we said, how we would deal with it. This is a contingency plan, you know, to make them just feel, you know, settled and confident. So that, that, that COVID has been a very strange blessing in disguise because anyone who had been invested in the previous 14 years would only have seen blue skies. Every time they got their investment statement through, if it was in a highly diversified, competitively priced contract, by and large, they would have just seen it going up and up and up. And clients fall for something called the performance illusion, which I talk about in the book. Um, and, and basically, if it's just up, most people, most people are happy and they get on with the day. If, it, 
eyes of that bottom right statement, as soon as it comes through, the only thing that clients' eyes are looking at are bottom right hand. What's the bottom line? If it's up, they're happy chappies. If it's about the same or it's less, it could ruin an otherwise good day. So it's managing expectations is key. Telling clients that that's going to happen from time to time. I, I work on a no surprises basis. I don't want my phone ringing when someone's saying to me, you never said this, you never said that could happen. So managing expectations be in a brutally honest fashion. I'd much rather tell clients uncomfortable truths than hollow uncomfortable lies. Yes, and that's um, completely understandable as well, because it's about managing psychology, isn't it? Almost managing mental health in a way. And that is something as well that's certainly been amplified by the pandemic, hasn't it? The issue of good mental well-being, also the work-life balance. Um, so we've talked about that with clients over the COVID period. But with regards to colleagues, how has it been sort of managing mental health with the people that you work with, would you say, during this time? Um, we've had regular sort of uh, Zoom and Microsoft Teams meetings, and we obviously, you know, we, we keep in touch with each other, you know, um, and we've done virtual meetings and so on and so forth. So it, it really hasn't, you know, again, it, lucky for us, it, it's not really affected us. It's it's basically shone a you know shone a light, put us under the microscope on how we can work more efficiently. So in a really most bizarre way, it's um, it's basically. Um, in a perverse way, we've learned things. Well, many people have learned things from this COVID, obviously, apart from the tragedy of it all. Mm. But from a business environment, it's made you reevaluate what you do and how you do it, increase efficiencies. I mean, you know, you, you know as well as I do, this is going to be a quantum shift in the way many, many people work. You know, this has shown people, without a shadow of a doubt, that a great number of people in commerce and business in, in the UK and globally can work as efficiently or even more efficiently at home. So it's going to be a strange shift in this pattern. I mean, if I live in Cornwall. So if you look at property prices, for example, Cornwall now is the number one destination. It's overtaken London. It's the most sought-after area because it's on the coast. And it's a lovely place to live because a lot of the high-degree executives, and they're probably thinking, I do not need to go to that office every day. I'd rather sit somewhere which is nice and quiet away from the, the big smoke where I can work every bit as efficiently, and that's going to do wonders for my mental health. So although it's it's obviously massively adverse, many people had an adverse effect on people that struggle with anxiety and worry about, you know, the global pandemic. I mean, when was the last time each of us literally considered our own mortality? It's not a natural thing to do. This has brought that home. So it's going to reframe a lot of people's thinking. But um, the mental health side from our business practice point of view, we have been fortunate that it, it really has largely been business as usual, but probably a little bit more um, cost-effective in many fashions. Mm. It's taught us a lot, hasn't it? It's reinforced that idea that every single day is a school day because it's almost everybody going straight back to basics, re-evaluating processes, trying to find new and efficient ways of working around the restrictions. And I understand as well that even pre-COVID, um, you at Manning & Company were anticipating that technology especially would have a greater role to play in future in how financial advice is being delivered. And I can imagine the last 12 months has essentially accelerated that. Yeah, it certainly has. Another interesting thing, I've been carrying out client reviews on video meetings, and the general feedback is clients quite like it. But you cannot beat sitting across a desk and seeing the whites of someone's eyes because you almost get like a sixth sense presence of gut feeling. When you're in the presence of somebody, 
rightly or wrongly, you know, you you you, you draw conclusions. Something I call in the book thin slices of information that the psychologist Amy Cuddy wrote, 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 ran, writes very well about. Is you form an instant opinion of someone, whether you're aware of it or not. We all do it. We all form an instant opinion on very thin slices of information in the instant you meet that person. So but with existing clients I've been having a long-term relationship with, they're basically saying to me, Mike, you know, it suits us down to the ground. We don't have to come to the office. It may be raining. We've got to park the car up. Invariably, we'll forget to bring something with us. Mm-hmm. Here, we can have a coffee in the comfort of our own home. Uh, and if I need to put my hand on a bit of paper, I can get hold of it. Nothing gets missed. So I, I, I'm still very much looking forward to keeping, you know, face-to-face meetings with clients when this COVID terrible thing is over. But by and large, there will also be a number of my clients that are more than happy to do it by video. Um, we, we video the calls, add it to the file. You know, from a security point of view, it's great. From a, from a compliance point of view, and clients, in my at least in my experience, in, in what I do, they really like it, and, and it, it's made me more efficient, and they understand that. If I've got to go and see three clients in a day, that's my day gone. But by doing video meetings, you know, I can easily fit in a good four solid meetings a day and get other things done. That can only benefit the client because I'm now spending more time on them than I am traveling. Exactly right. And it's one of many beneficial changes that could come about as we move into that post-COVID world, for sure. The increased use of technology, a greater work-life balance, more time to work on clients to do things. And as well as other changes that we want to see in the industry, including, of course, stripping away the jargon, as we've discussed already, bringing in more financial education. Something else within the finance industry that is of concern to you, I understand, is the fact that it lacks in younger professionals still. It's a very male-dominated industry and therefore getting younger people and also getting more women into the sector is going to be a priority in the future as well or at least it should be yeah we've been banging on this for quite some time not just me but the industry as a, as a whole the whole profession has been talking about this i think the average age of, age of an independent financial advisor is mid to late 50s in the uk um obviously male dominated as you rightly said as you said you're correct in saying that it's completely you know terrible position this, there are some fantastic female advisors out there. So I know some myself, top leaders in the field, you know, superb at what they do. Um, and I think there needs to be a balance, and particularly the youth side of the business and the profession. See, the problem is it's almost like establishing an apprenticeship again. The biggest issue I see young people that have got the right mentality to succeed in this business, and it's a very noble and great business to be in if you do it properly. But, but basically, um, the problem they've got is, one of the big problems you're going to have is if you get a 25-year-old who's passed all the qualifications, um, knows the subject matter really well, can answer any technical questions. The, the, issue, the issue they got, in my opinion, is when they're sitting down with someone who's 60 or 65 and is going to make some life-changing decisions about their retirement, the older person will often think, you're 20, 25, you've got no real life experience. And it, it's a, it's a, it is a hurdle to overcome. I'm not saying it's insurmountable, not with the right training and support by older advisors, but nevertheless, it is an issue. Mm. You know, if, if you think, if you put a 25-year-old who's who could be extremely capable in front of a 65-year-old couple, I'm sure you can understand where I'm coming from, where they might be forgiven for thinking, what do you know about retirement? But that's that's one big hurdle, in my, in my opinion, that is a difficult one to overcome. It's not insurmountable. Because if you've got the right interviewing skills and you can demonstrate 
you know, that you listen well and you've got a great degree of empathy and you're really listening to what the client wants to achieve, I think you'll overcome it. Mm. But that's why, that's probably one of the reasons why, particularly as far as investments and pension planning is concerned, that you don't see too many younger advisors. And it's something we really need to work hard on, building the secondary skill set, in my opinion, the most important skill set. If people like you and they trust you, you will always be busy in this business. Likeability, trustworthiness, those, in my opinion, are the two most important traits. Technical knowledge, of course, is important. Of course it is. But from a from a thin slices bit of information, first impression, do I like this person? Do I feel comfortable with this person? Do they seem competent? And above all, can I trust them? If you can elicit those traits, that's one massive step up the rung to being a successful advisor in this business. And it goes back to that point that you made earlier as well, that people do make decisions and opinions on you quite quickly. And it's giving off that impression, having that aura of confidence straight away that is so very important. And um, another thing as well in the future that's going to be important for the industry is not just, of course, bringing younger people into the sector, but also making sure that legislative changes aren't overburdening as well, because the industry is very well regulated. Of course, it has to be. Um, But overburdening legislation is also a problem and that is going to be an issue of concern for the sector going forward as well totally yeah i mean it's going to be a constant moan you know advisors are always going to say what next it it seems never ending the the compliance requirements and box ticking exercises it's almost getting to the cover your backside and it shouldn't be about that see as i said earlier in this chat education is key managing expectations. If you're brutally honest with clients and you cover across the T's and dot all the I's and you constantly reinforce that through my newsletters, the way I do it, and interviews, revisiting what you said initially when the, when the relationship was first established, telling them that these things can go wrong, you won't get the complaints. Because people will often complain because they haven't been, they haven't been dealt with in the most honest, transparent fashion. No, I'm not saying that's right in our profession. Thankfully, most of that's been consigned to the dark old days when you know compliance wasn't anywhere near it should be today. But it's a fine line on basically suffocating the profession and advisors on a constant box-ticking exercise. Did I say that? Did I tick this? Did I tick that? That doesn't really help the client. Suitability reports at the moment, they're almost becoming like you know war and peace. You know, the Gettysburg Address, it doesn't really help the client. Not really. It's basically just, oh, did I say that? Did I say that? Did I cover that? Did I put that rule in? Did I put that one in? Did I put that one in? I mean, if you think about it, I mean, I once calculated that if someone just wanted to save £200 a month into an individual savings account, like in an investment ISA, when you add in the suitability report, the information about the company, the investment information, the uh, the illustration, the key features document, for someone to save £200 a month, they could easily be burdened with about 80 or 90 pages of information to read. Mm. Well, that's completely unreasonable. But the problem is, if it's not recorded, or you didn't say it, or you can't evidence it, it never happened. And I think it's just going a bit too one-sided. And again, it comes back to education, because if advisors did the job properly, and we all want to do the job properly, everyone wants to sleep easy at night, but if you're being brutally honest with clients and you keep re, uh, you keep injecting them with that sanity serum about reiterating 
about investments and what can go wrong and so on and so forth, those complaints will dwindle because the client's expectations have been properly managed. So they, they might not like what's going on in the market, but they accept it and they were told that mm. it could happen. And we talked an awful lot today about the importance of education and some of those qualities that people who will excel in the financial advice industry are going to need to have. But just to that next generation of budding entrepreneurs and aspiring leaders who may be tuning into this, um, what message would you have for them more broadly, Mike, to sort of get them to look up and embrace opportunities at this time? Because one or two might be looking at the jobs market at the moment post-COVID and maybe a bit downhearted by it all. Mm. Um, well, I mean, social media is a big thing these days. You can reach so many people so quickly these days. I mean, the, the big ones are from the business point of view, LinkedIn website that most people, I mean, my own opinion is these days, you know, whether you like it or not, if you want to be seen, you have got to have a reasonably decent social media or website presence just to get yourself out there and to put out content. People are trying to look for maybe a job change or a shift in occupation because COVID may have dictated, because there's been winners and losers, obviously, in the COVID situation, as far as commerce is concerned. Mm. I mean, Amazon and, and Zoom and um, you know, Netflix, case in point. So they've flourished in this business, you know, massively. But people that are looking for a different shift now, my advice to them would be to start putting the feelers out, get, getting over, putting themselves in front of influencers or people that they look up to and respect. I mean, when I was sort of younger, it took me a while to realize it, but I could have got a lot more help when I was younger if I'd only just been mindful of the fact that if I put myself out to get in front of people that I looked up to and respected. Because in my experience, those successful people are generally forthcoming with advice. And, you know, you only need the odd little pearl of wisdom, and it can change your entire thought process. Mm. I've been lucky I've had it in my life a few times. People have been, you know, in my life for maybe a short period of time, and they've moved on or I've been in someone's company and they've said one thing they've hit me like a brick and I've always thought why on earth how could I never have thought of that or my god that's changed my entire outlook so I would always suggest people reach out to those people you know try and put feeders out to those people that you look up to respecting your local community of business because in my experience they're often forthcoming with advice or they may be able to open a door that otherwise would have been remained closed you know, you've got you've got to try and put yourself out there, and never don't be afraid to go cap in hand to ask for some advice. It's essentially networking, isn't it? It's um, I believe it was Nelson Mandela who once said something along the lines of surround yourself with people who are better than you and that is one of the greatest pieces of advice you can give go out seek out people who have that know-how because you don't have to do it on your own you can seek advice and you can then act upon what you've learned. Yeah, it's, it's a fate of getting a no. You know, the, mm. that most negative of words that we hear an awful lot in our formative years, which transforms our thinking. There are some reports that come out, you've read various reports of it. When a kid's growing up, I mean, they hear the word no, you know, dozens and dozens of times a day. Don't do this, don't do that, you can't do this, you shouldn't do that. I mean, that can have a bit of a knock-on effect in your adult life. You know, it can to a degree. Again, these things are formed from early years of money and attitude and what you think you're capable of as an individual. And it's not easy to break through glass ceilings if it's been indoctrinated from a young age that you think, you know, you're set for failure, you know. Um, so you've got to be a, try not to be afraid of no, you know. Try to just accept that sometimes there are going to be knockbacks. But if you ask enough times, you'll find the odd person's going to come across and will give you time. Or say, look, what is it you're trying to do? Why, why are you thinking this way at the moment? Or you think you need a career change because of COVID. What do you think you need to be good at? I mean, you know, the great thing is the, the ultimate 
is to try and find the job you'd do if you didn't need a job. <laughs> if, if, if you could get the job that you, you know, that you would ideally like, if you didn't need a job, that's the job for you. Easier said than done, but that's a, not a bad starting point. What would I love to do if I didn't need a job? That's a great place to start. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's a great place to start. I mean, Warren Buffett, you know, the fantastic investment mm. guru of Berkshire Hathaway, you know, I mean, I think he said that. I said, find the job that you would do if you didn't need a job. And I thought, wow, that was another brick, you know? I thought, I can pass that on to nephews and nieces and younger people. You know, most people stumble into jobs, you know. You know, I mean, yeah. As an example, if you go and check in at an airport, that that lady or that guy that checks your ticket in and says, oh, you, that's you, I, I find it hard to believe that that's what they felt they wanted to be when they were at school. Uh, you know, who, when you're at school in, in the world, you're oyster and you could be anything, you know, a blank canvas. I can't imagine most people saying, oh, do you know what I want to be? I want to be that person that checks you in at an airport. Most, I'm using it as a, as a mundane example. I'm obviously not having to go at people that work in airports. Mm. I'm using it as an example of most people fall into a job that they never dreamt they were wanted to do, and they become a workplace prisoner. And I've got a chapter on that in the book. Don't be a workplace prisoner. There are people that will spend 40 years, I think something like 100,000 hours of our lives we spend working. 100,000 hours. That's a long time to be somewhere where you don't want to be. And the sad thing about it is that most people never have the motivation to, to move on. They're settled or some people feel indebted that they've got a job in the first place and that they almost feel indebted to the business. So the sad thing is there are thousands, millions of people that I deem are workplace prisoners. It's really sad. How many people do you know, for example, that gush about what they do and they love what they do and get out of bed looking before they go to work? The reality is, it's a sad fact of life, not many. It's something hugely thought-provoking and something really to think about, isn't it? I think it is very, very right that sometimes people can get sucked into a certain profession, put all of their aspirations and dreams on hold for necessity of stability in life, and then everything else sort of falls by the wayside. Um, Mike, I have to say it's been a fantastic um, discussion having you join us on the programme, and our time is slowly drawing to its close. But just before we do wrap things up, um, I would like to talk about the next 12 months and what that could bring for you in the business, now that we're moving out of the COVID-19 world, as it were, very slowly but surely. So over the next 12 months, what is it that you are really hoping to achieve at Manning & Company? Well, one thing I would just say but I forgot to mention was, as far as our profession is concerned, it's shown the companies under a microscope. But what it's put, it's put mm. them through the mill, it's sort of the wheat and the chaff out. Because companies have had to work, I'll come to that point in just a moment, but what, one of the things that we've seen is that companies have been really put under the spotlight, how they've reacted and been able to perform under working from home. And there are some companies that just completely, completely tarnished their reputation. I know many advisors never use them again. And some of them have shone brightly where they've been so easy to deal with. So they've sort of shot themselves in the foot. From our point of view, from a business point of view, what, what we've seen is advisors have also experienced that from their um, the companies they work for. They, I've heard rumors that they could have been let down, not much support. They've been left to their own devices, left a bit lonely perhaps, no arm wrapped around them, however you want to put it. So what it's shown, we've, we've been getting to get inquiries from advisors at work in our vicinity. I mean, we have advisors in London, part of the mining company, and further afield. But 
we've been getting some inquiries from people that felt, they said, you know what, the COVID's really made me think about who I'm working for at the moment, mm. and I'm not happy, and they've given reasons why this has happened. So from a manning point of view, we are looking to expand the practice. We are looking to take on people that feel that, you know, they, they would get a, you know, a better work-life relationship working with us than perhaps where they are at the moment. We're not actively hunting for it, but it's a sort of organic thing where people, you know, through social media, send you a private message or would you mind having a chat on a video call? I'm a bit disgruntled right at the moment. So from the manning point of view, we're looking to increase efficiencies on technology because that's not going to go away. And COVID is, you know, very much brought that into focus. Uh, we can improve functionality and our competitive edge and smart use of technology across many different platforms. We want integration where different software packages speak to each other, where you've only got a single point entry and you're not putting data in two or three times, which is one of the bane of an advisor's life is having to put information in two or three times of the different bits of software. So we're looking at doing that. We're looking at getting, you know, quality advisors that we feel fit within the, uh, the Manning mentality and way of thinking. And, you know, we have been one of those fortunate sectors that life has gone on. You know, it hasn't stopped because we're in finance. People need money or need to restructure their income or whatever. So, yeah, it's basically a, an organic growth we see for the business over the next sort of five to ten years. Um, smart use of technology minimizing you know our overheads wherever we can again technology is going to drive that and just trying to you know like any business just try to constantly improve and be a bit more polished that's what we're trying to do and what every business tries to do i guess Thank you ever so much for joining us, Mike. And as a reminder to our listeners, uh, Mike's book, Your Money and Your Life, is now available and can currently be purchased online from publisher Lulu. I believe it's available. And, and Amazon. It's on Amazon now as well. It's on Amazon now as well. Excellent. Um, I believe, um, did you say Barnes & Noble and others in the next few weeks are also going to be stocking it as well, Mike? Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. Lulu sends, once it's all been sort of set up, Lulu press a button, I guess, their end, and it goes to all the, but I've, I've learned over the last few days it's fully available um, other Kindle paperback and hardback on Amazon now. And I'm also having an audible version recorded as we speak. And mm. um, I won't be doing it with my uh, West Country accent, <laughs> but I've got a professional sort of voiceover actor that speaks a lot better than I do who's recording it. So it will be uploaded to um, the audible um, database on Amazon, um, I would imagine, in the next few weeks as well. So that would be nice to get that done. Yes, incredibly exciting. And also for those who are familiar with us at the Leaders' Council, there is an article about the book already up on our website and a link to the Lulu site where it can be purchased. Um, Mike, I wish you all of the success in the world with that book now that it is out. Um, For me, certainly, it's been a most insightful experience having you joining us on the programme today. And I must say, I would relish the opportunity to have you back on the show at some point in the coming months first to catch up and just see how things are getting on as we move out of this pandemic period. I'd love to do that. I really enjoyed it. And uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to discuss another chat with you today. I was speaking to Mike Legasic, Director and Behavioural Investment Coach at Manning and & Company. And I do hope that you all thoroughly enjoyed the interview. Until next time, now that outdoor hospitality has returned in the UK, I'm off to a local beer garden to raise a glass to outstanding leadership and hopefully over the coming weeks we'll keep taking further strides toward normal life. Remember everyone, please do continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others. It makes such a difference in preserving lives. We're almost there, better days are coming, but let's just be careful about how we're going about it. Take care now and goodbye.